This week, I'm joined once again by Daniel Kelly. Dan and I sit down and we talk about hell and judgment, which is quite a uh, quite a hard subject to get right and to honestly reflect upon, especially with a lot of the baggage that I think both Daniel and I are working through and have worked through and will be continuing to work through. But I think this is a really healthy conversation because it sheds a lot of light on the reasons why heaven and hell and afterlife and judgment are things within our biblical stories and our uh, theological frameworks and also how one begins to unpick that when they step outside of a Christian narrative. So for that reason, I think this conversation is very helpful. We tried something new in this conversation where actually the video is being recorded with both Daniel and I um, on your screens at the same time. I'd love to get your thoughts and feedback on this. So if you're watching on YouTube, please make sure you leave a comment to let us know how you find it. And whilst you're there, it'd be amazing if you'd hit like, subscribe, and then hit that notification bell so you're reminded when every video is released for our podcast series. Enjoy the conversation. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion, and life. This podcast is all about listening. We want people to share their reasons for faith or their reasons for non-belief so that we can better understand what has or has not convinced somebody of the claims that different religions profess. This is a journey, it's not a destination. And I'm really excited to have you listening with us each week as we delve into different viewpoints from different parts of the world to try and uncover the truth. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Dan and I'm joined today by the regular host, uh, Sam. How are you doing? I'm well, mate. I like the regular host, Sam. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I often feel like these sorts of things. I was listening back to um, an episode on death that I recorded with um, with Dave a year and a bit ago, and um, it just sounds so different. Like the podcast has has changed so much since then. It's ridiculous. Um, anyway, yeah, I kind of feel like I'm not the same person. I'm not the regular person. There was someone else back then that was doing these things. Um, anyway, yes, it's good to see you, mate. How, how, how are things going with, uh, with the the end of lockdown and the beginning of some sort of horrific heat wave across the whole of the UK. <laughs> yeah, it, it was funny. Today I, I walked into a supermarket and I still put on my mask. It, it's just a matter of habit. And I was wandering around like, why is no one wearing a mask? Like I saw one other person. I was like, did I miss the memo? And yes, I did actually miss the memo. Today is apparently freedom day uh, in the UK with the restrictions lifting, but uh, it doesn't, it doesn't quite feel like that just yet. Um, I'm still a bit nervous. And obviously, who knows when we release this, where, what sort of uh, place we'll be in then. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's been good. It's been good. We'll see how things go. But uh, yeah, it's also ridiculously hot. And as a Scot, this this is not good. This is not healthy for me. <laughs> it's not it's not ideal. I'm uh, for like the first time ever recording with my window open and my door open, so that, um, there might be some creaking listener of my kids in their bunk bed next door, also unable to sleep because it is so hot. Um, but yeah, it's it's weird because um, yeah, I think I can't remember what we were talking about. But when I when when it was last this hot, I ended up doing an episode with with uh, Dave and, and may, maybe Helen as well, and. Um, Back then it was audio only, but I was really, really adamant that it would be perfect. So I had my window shut, door shut, and the webcam was off, luckily. But I was just sat there with just like 
water dripping down my head like this is so warm why have i done this to myself um but yeah luckily this time i just don't care enough so those things are open and i'm nice and cool well coolish um yeah yeah and my fan is on full pelt so there might be a, a background on as well but absolutely essential unless we you know we collapse under the heat um so uh today i think it'd be great to sort of have a conversation around quite a, a unique topic and one that I found really, really interesting as I sort of left faith and one that I found quite difficult as well to work through. And that's the idea of the afterlife, uh, the idea of uh, judgment and the idea of hell. And I feel like if you had told me that atheists would think about hell quite a lot, especially those of us who have left Christianity, I, I wouldn't have quite understood why. It would seem quite surreal to me. I would have thought, well, surely if you've just left your faith, then you no longer believe in hell. Nice and easy, nice and simple. And it's been clear to me that for myself, and what I very quickly realized was true for so many people who'd, who'd left Christianity and, you know, other faiths with that same sort of hell and judgment um, mechanism within them, is that actually it's something that doesn't just disappear overnight. And what I thought would be really great is in our conversation to just talk about, I mean, first of all, what, what did we believe as Christians? Um, what was our understanding of of some of these concepts? How did it um, how did it work? What did we believe? How did it affect some of our attitudes and our actions as well? And then to sort of explore a bit later on, obviously, how did that change in leaving Christianity, and how how did we both handle it? Because I know that for both of us, it was it's quite a difficult part of the journey. And yeah, and hopefully, I think especially for us. I'm aware that throughout that process, I it felt quite lonely and it felt I felt weird about talking about this stuff because it's it's a bit difficult and a bit strange and a little bit irrational for me, which we'll get into a bit later. But actually, it's it's something which is very understandable um, to have this fear of hell or a fear of judgment coming out of faith. Um, so yeah, so I guess to get us kicked off Sam be really curious to get a, a rough gist of you know back when you were a Christian what for you what was your understanding of this idea of the afterlife massive open question um my idea of the afterlife so I think as a Christian it was always very much rooted around kind of God bringing about a human's desire into its fullness so that sounds really weird because it's almost like, um, you know, why, why would a human choose hell? Why would a human choose something else? But actually what happened was you began to see and realize that people have various things that they hold on to. So it could be they hold on to a desire for money, a desire for sex, a desire for work or whatever. And these things ultimately became what they worshipped. Um, so it was a very much like a C.S. Lewis idea, which is thought of the the sorts of things we do today echo into eternity, echo into our afterlife. So um, if you began to just lie casually, that lie would almost consistently be you as you just began to be okay with how you were. So my idea back when I was a Christian was that, you know, if somebody 
honestly sought Christ as the centre to everything, they would have that in fulfilment within eternity. And if someone sought, you know, personal gain or pleasure or whatever else it was, that would be the thing that they were seeking. So it's almost like um, sin was almost essentially just selfishness transposed into different sorts of elements and then you would begin to kind of see that you know it greed lust whatever it is it all comes from this desire to fulfill oneself um and actually the only way you one can be fulfilled is when they're fully invested in christ so therefore um we should be seeking christ with everything we are because we were created to be with him so the afterlife was very much about the sort of the echoes of today becoming a fruit of tomorrow and that fruit being the thing that you would live within so it's almost like you kind of lie in the bed that you make so i was never like a um i guess a universalist or a sort of like an annihilationist we can kind of t touch on these things and explain them more in, in due course i'm sure but um for me it very much was a um a, a c.s lewis hell is locked from the inside like those that are within hell are there because they have followed the desires of their heart and those echoes have become the reality that they live within. And because they do want to seek wealth or fame or whatever it is, they're able to fully, like God's given them the ability to fully do that. So it's almost like, um, I think one of the one of my youth leaders said, it's, it's almost like God loves people that much that he creates and then holds this space for humans to be separate from him, but he still contains them because he wants them to actually be able to be whatever it is they want to be. And they could want to become like, um, you know, in, in um, the Screwtape Letters, not Screwtape Letters, Great Divorce, um, C.S. Lewis talks about Napoleon kind of walking backwards and forwards in an absolutely massive mansion. And he's kind of got all this wealth and food and stuff. And, and every now and then he has to end up moving away to a bigger mansion because somebody moves close to him. So he always wants to be on his own, living in whatever he thinks his perfection is. Um, so I guess I view the afterlife as the ability to hold that which you truly desired today and which sounds weird when you stop and think about it but that's how you would theologically deconstruct it um what i actually thought about how that worked out and and how people got those desires is probably quite different and, 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 and convoluted i can go into that later if we need to but that was my sort of um yeah that's what the afterlife looked like for me yeah interesting and i guess it, it's an interesting concept the idea that you know almost that that judgment that you're talking about is almost like taking the what is viewed as bad and almost amplifying it and expanding upon it and almost showing how I, I guess at my most generous to such a position I guess I want to say regardless of people that sort of making that truth claim about what uh, sort of that afterlife might look like there's sort of this idea of actually if you do some of these bad things if you take that to its logical conclusion actually you can see how it causes so much pain and so, so much suffering and sort of turning that into a narrative where it's turned in on yourself and your it's the fulfillment of what you wanted um, is is an interesting sort of moral that's being tried to spin out of these tales so was it was it that sort of thinking or was it no actually this was the theological this is what is true i think it was more of a a story being outworked to try and understand something that we kind of 
vaguely had had alluded to us within the Bible. So um, it, it would always be like we are basing our beliefs on what the Bible says, and, and the Bible teaches hell, so therefore hell is a real thing. But um, we are believing we believe in an all loving God as well. The Bible tells us that you know God is is love essentially, um, and because of that, we need to then begin to unpack and, and create a narrative that helps us to re- reconcile those two things. Because a, a, a good loving God who would um, allow somebody to you know, if if you believe in like a, a Dante's Inferno, medieval sort of hell with fire and brimstone, like you, you would have to kind of go. Why is that a thing where people are almost punished for their sin in like a relentless, tortured fashion? And then you got you know, other passages in Revelation which talks about like rivers of blood coming from those that are kind of being tormented, essentially. And it, it's it's it it was all about creating a narrative that would uh, that would explain how that could potentially fit into um, the sort of bigger arcs that we have of god and i think the bigger arcs having god like look at the gospel of john or the epistles of john and and even paul and some of the other gospels you 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 see a god that is more more not fully but more centered around love um so there's this sort of idea that you know if if this is a bigger narrative if, if this narrative of love and wanting to reconcile humanity to himself and wanting to almost be a part of us and allow us to come back to be part of him if that's the is that the, that's the broader narrative the much smaller narrative would be judgment and hell um but those things are so stark in comparison how do we bring those things together so the narrative was to almost like copy and paste between those lines and make sure that it made a bit more sense but if you were to begin to try and theologically work it out it doesn't like you know that nice idea of heaven being uh, sorry hell being locked from the inside that isn't in the new testament the sort of the sort of wrath of God is in the New Testament. I kind of think that's where you'd, you'd see Jesus talking about hell is actually more of a um, sort of wrathful annihilation of those who did not want to belong to the kingdom as, as, as you know, the Messiah was meant to proclaim it of, of, of Yahweh coming back to redeem his people. So I kind of, I kind of feel like the way that we kind of look at stuff, it, it doesn't quite match up. Don't know, does, that, does that explain it in any helpful way at all? Yeah, I think it, it's it's interesting, and certainly you're 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 on the money. I think so much of the conversations that happen within Christian circles, back in my experience, like hell is such a touchy subject, and it is very rarely touched upon. Partly, you know, it's an ugly topic, and no one wants to talk about ugly topics. Everyone wants to hold on to the nicer verses and just ignore these these sort of things but you know i cer- i certainly remember the the controversy that went around when i think rob bell uh, released the book love wins and you know this um rise of universalism uh that a lot of uh christians were afraid of at that time and it it's it's tricky because for a christian who's who trying to follow what the bible says you go well what does the bible say not a lot really not a lot it's 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 slight illusions and even then like some of the strongest passages you're going to find are coming from the book of revelation which is a genre that yeah is not in our common lexicon now uh, apocalyptic literature is just not something that we we do anymore and it then becomes incredibly difficult to interpret. And also, you know, especially for the, the book of Revelation, it's it's kind of taking shots at the the um, the empire of uh, Nero's Rome. Uh, so 
it's got an entirely different historical context as well. So, yeah, it's it's instantly this very difficult topic. And as you say, there's sort of then what different people then take what elements of the broader narrative to then try and fill in the gaps of well, what what is really happening in this this little subsection? Massively, yeah. Like you you, you mentioned uh, Revelation and, and, and Nero, and um, you know the number of the beast essentially spells Nero's name if you actually broke it down properly. Um, so it's it's really interesting that. Um, there's, there's so much political agenda behind the book of revelation. You can't, it isn't trying to allude to a future state within Christianity It's trying to, um, pop shots at essentially the, the leading figure of the anti-church movement, you know, 60, uh, 64 AD or CE, um, however you want to say it, um, was when this sort of, like, basically Nero burnt down a third of Rome or whatever it is, and then blamed it on the Christians, um, or so the story goes, um, he might have just used that as an excuse to kind of persecute Christians. But anyway, essentially that's when it became a, a persecution and it wasn't as bad as a lot of apologists like to make out. It was still pretty brutal, but like not everybody died. Like it, there was, there, there were much worse sorts of, um, persecutions to come. Think about the Spanish, uh, the Spanish, um, Inquisition or, or things like that. You, you see a lot more essential death and destruction, especially medieval kind of Europe within Christianity. Um, anyway, I go off on a really random subject, but um, basically, yes, I think you see that these things are utilised in a way that fits the agenda of those that are wielding it, rather than it actually being a, a sort of like an exegetical outworking of the scripture that you're trying to engage with. You're just trying to essentially make it say what you wanted to say, rather than go, what's it actually trying to say and who's it speaking to? And uh, that's, that's such a danger within any sort of interpretation is when you bend it to fit a story yeah mm. and and do you feel like while you were a christian did the idea of hell the idea of judgment sort of change the way that you lived change the way that you thought about different problems the um your conduct as a christian yeah i think I remember a really good friend of mine saying that they're worried that another good friend of mine is going to hell because they hadn't been living in a particularly christian way and it was almost like you had to um you had to be something and say something in order to prove that you were living in, in living in accords to God's will. And then when you're in that position, you were able to um show from the fruits that you were gonna be saved. And it's almost like we had this sort of like idea of what it looked like to be a Christian. And if somebody wasn't quite fitting that uh, fitting the bill, essentially, you'd then go, well, they, they clearly aren't a Christian, so therefore they're probably going to go to hell. And it was almost used as a, um, I guess, as, 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 as a form of abuse, but not, not, not from those that were trying to wield it as such, but it became essentially a, a, um, an, an indoctrination that was abusing people's minds and, and, and making them kind of go, okay, well, I don't want to appear like I'm not living for, for, for God so I need to do these things to act like I'm living for God but actually um, am I just now doing these things to appear like I'm living for God rather than actually what what the hell does living for God look like like I don't want to go to hell so like literally what does it look like to show that I'm living for God and um, and to actually be living for God with my heart and mind not just my actions and so it became like a very um, a very tricky situation so I think yeah I I, I think that answers the question so yeah that's that's interesting I guess you've um you saw it happen a lot around you. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's interesting, especially, you know, and this, I guess, is the problem that I, I think hell brings into a situation like this, where 
it ratchets up the risks to infinity and it just breaks all of our cognitive processes to be able to go hang on okay which of these is the more dangerous option which one's the more likely we do some rough cost benefit analysis in our monkey brains that aren't very good at doing that sort of thing well kind of and kind of not uh but something like such uh especially you know some of the most extreme groups that do teach quite explicit eternal conscious torment um you know, and certainly throughout history, there have been those groups that uh, have loved Dante's Inferno um, and the various predecessor documents. Um, I think it's the Apocalypse of Peter. It's some, it might be the Apocalypse of Paul. I can't remember which one was which, that particularly Dante's Inferno drew upon for some of this hell imagery to try and create a narrative that actually provides sort of this, this easy cognitive lever of, well, you, you're anyone would possibly is afraid of this and so therefore you would do anything to avoid it and therefore it can be this very cruel psychological tool of control Yeah, I mean, massively. You see, you see the idea of hell becoming more and more prevalent as you look through the whole of the scriptures, and then into the sort of like apocalyptic or you know post New Testament scriptures as well. You see it becoming more and more prevalent, and it's this, um, it's essentially this outworking of trying to understand what it means to have more time. Like we're we're trying to find more time to reconcile um, injustices or hopes that weren't fulfilled or um, a desire to see Yahweh return and you begin to kind of um, pop things out like you know, Abraham didn't actually manage to see his descendants become like the sand on the seashore or the stars in the night sky so um, you know there's this sort of idea that actually he'll, he will see that when he kind of comes into his fullness in an, 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 an afterlife and how you begin to have problems in the Old Testament because they didn't believe in a straight to heaven or hell they believed in more of a, like a sheol which was like a, a, a returning of the body to earth and the breath God's uh, ruach um, to back to him and that's that's the earliest sort of kind of like afterlife we have and then we begin to see this idea I mean N.T. Wright talks about this as well this this, this idea that um, the Holy Spirit within a person is then shaping the person but the person shapes the spirit and then that spirit returns to god and it will either find a place in god or it will, it will leave essentially and go this you know it'll leave the person alone and go no you aren't you aren't part of me so it's really interesting like even today modern theologians are trying to encapsulate the idea of sheol and the body going to the ground and the spirit returning to god the breath returning to god and to a sort of like um, a holy spirit kind of coming within us and the sort of baptism of fire that we see there so it's it's it's, it's really interesting like heaven heaven and hell have been yeah essentially like broadened and increased as time's gone by even to things like okay well if jesus was resurrected and there's a promise of a bodily resurrection later so you've got the first resurrection which is christ and you've got the second resurrection which is everybody else so okay we need to make sure that when the, the when when the trumpet sounds and uh, people are able to be be raised from the dead okay so when we bury somebody obviously it's not permanent it's going to be you know a few hundred years maybe that their bones which should still be around so we need to put their feet to the to the to, to essentially to the east and their head to the west so that when christ returns everyone's already facing the right way um so everyone can stand up and be 
presented to Christ in, 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 in their resurrected state. And then there's so many theological debates about sort of what happens then if, you know, somebody dies and their body does actually fully disintegrate and their body actually nourishes an apple but that apple falls from a tree and then you know a, a bug eats it and that bug gets eaten by a bird that bird dies and gets eaten by fish like who and then that fish gets eaten by a person um okay we don't think that animals necessarily get raised from the dead but if a single person's like you know sort of carbon fiber or not carbon fiber um sort of atoms essentially go 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 into um four or five different people which which is is the case we're all made up of, of other beings um whose do they return to like where is the essential essence of an individual if it's all just recycled matter and um it's just it, it doesn't sound like it should be a big issue within theology but it is because it's this idea that if we're going to resurrect from the dead you've, you've just got to postulate that god can do it you can't actually understand it in any sort of full way because it doesn't make sense to, to say well it's this state today you're in like people might say when you're in heaven you'll be 24 you'll be beautiful are you what you have many ball people in heaven these sorts of like weird things which is like okay well i'll still ball at 24 so fuck you but um the the actual sort of like weird weird analogy is how do you how do you encapsulate somebody's perfect being and how do you then restore that into a resurrected state so uh, you know are we are we actually going to be physically resurrected which is very much what the new testament is getting at or is it going to be a spiritual resurrection we don't have to worry about the body and that won't sound like a big issue to a lot of kind of non-believers but for believers honestly there are hundreds and hundreds of years worth of theology going back and forth trying to figure this out because it is an issue um so yeah it, it's, it's interesting how we have what i was trying to say originally essentially created different ways to deal with issues like justice or, or hopes that we haven't worked out or vengeance or whatever it is and then um on that we create more issues essentially to actually try and then figure out we never actually get to the end of it there's always more problems which is why we have things like annihilationism and universalism becoming prevalent today because the idea of somebody going to die forever in a state of hell like a literal burning to death is completely and utterly immoral so how could somebody do a, 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 a an act which is only ever going to be encapsulated in in a finite amount of time and then the, the natural recompense for that is is eternal suffering of some description whether that is being being boiled alive or skin being flayed off you or living without christ which people would say is the biggest suffering living without god like how would you just, that just doesn't make sense so there must there needs to be some sort of other way about working it so we just consistently we can see you can see the road we've been going down for the last like two thousand years to try and get to this space it's um it's it's a strange one it really is yeah and it, it's it's one of those topics because there is no meaningful way of actually figuring out any correct answer even assuming so much of christian uh theology around believing in god okay jesus was resurrected from the dead what what does that really tell you about the afterlife it doesn't tell you much uh, at all and so they're filling in blanks um even even within their own theological discussions uh because there is no way of actually ascertaining proper truth in this matter because as you say even the uh, you know the biblical texts all have show a difference a, a changing a development of their understanding and their beliefs in in these things so trying to turn to that for any clear narrative is is going to leave a lot of people disappointed and i think it's also interesting what you say there around judgment because what i very quickly observed and you know thought a lot about is you know there's quite a lot of discussion in sort of the uh, topic of justice between two, like, there are a couple of others, but two sort of main schools of thought 
around uh, retribution and uh, consequentialism. So the idea behind retribution is that, you know, the there should be punishment for crimes or immoral actions, and that should match the crime by our, our moral intuitions. And, and certainly, as you say, you know, eternal conscious torment uh, is always going to be disproportionate, no matter how bad and serious the crime is. So there does seem to be this, this very odd uh, uh, matching up there. And someone who, uh, like myself, who says, actually, I think we should be very, very, very careful around this idea of punishing crimes. And instead, especially, you know, on a more practical basis, when we're talking about real justice and in real legal system, um, um, inflicting this justice, this retribution on people, quite often tends to make situations worse. And more often, we take broken people and we break them even more in our, our justice system. And so there's, there's that argument. And so I look at eternal conscious torment and I go, that's just awful on so many, even more levels around that. At the same time, you know, I think if we appreciate the real humanity of people who have lived through awful and traumatic circumstances and have been harmed, um, who have loved ones who have been murdered or gone through just dreadful experiences, that pure desire that rises up, that desire for justice, desire for vengeance, desire for retribution can be so strong. And the idea that no one can escape punishment uh, is a comforting one. And the idea that actually God will put it right, God will punish that person for what they've done to me is an incredibly comforting thought, albeit I'm not entirely sure the most healthy one for, for moving forward. Hey, I want to take a minute of your time to talk about supporting When Belief Dies. This will always be an advertisement-free podcast, and for that reason, I hope you will be willing to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app and check us out over on YouTube. Finally, I want to ask you to consider supporting the show financially. You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal. Everything that you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog and podcast. Take a look in the description for all the links and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's episode. Yeah, I am. Um, so there's, there's, there's a little boy, um, I don't know, late 90s, maybe early 90s, in the 90s at some point, um, who was three years old, I think, and um, got basically um, it's uh, Jamie Bolger. It's quite quite a well-known story here, here in the UK. Essentially, got led led by two other boys a little bit older than him in their kind of like early like ten, eleven, twelve-ish, and then basically taken to a train track and just horrifically murdered, essentially, uh, by these two boys who were then put in jail for what they did, and they've they've had loads of other issues with their lives and stuff, and there's sort of this 
there's this desire within me to cry out for justice for that to go that you you know like Jamie like you were you were loved like you you were cared about and you had value and you had worth and there's this, this heart cry that I find within my like almost subconscious that just get, roars for justice um and it feels very much rooted within us and obviously a lot of Christians would point to that and go well, that is a sign for for Christ for, for God being real um but actually I think for me it, it speaks more about our evolutionary desires to have hope and to have things that keep us going to keep us alive to kind of help us to push forwards because there are going to be probably millions of stories like that that we aren't aware of this is just one that made the headlines here in the UK to a massive extent and you go back you know 80,000 years the sorts of things that were happening to individuals is just a, a completely different bewildering uh, bewildering state um, I've just finished uh, Joshua Bowen's book on the um, on the Old Testament for atheists, his first volume, and um, it's, it's a really interesting section in there where he talks about the, the sort of rights that female slaves had compared to male slaves, due to the fact they were used for the sexual e uh, exploits. But male slaves were still used for sexual uh, sexual exploits. It's just not talked about in in the in in, in the Old Testament. And it's interesting the sort of different cultural, um, I guess importance that we focus on on different situations we want to give certain things more credence than 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 other things for instance and essentially that that you know, even i'm jumping around a lot of apologies but kind of gives you one more example and go back to sort of ancient history but the the the, the sort of other example which is quite helpful to hear at times is the idea of um of uh, purgatory so when somebody does something the sort of catholic idea was okay well it's not fair they're going to be tormented forever but it's also not fair they go straight to heaven so we need to have something in between um, and there was a long time when people could actually like pay like give give the catholic church money and you'd get years knocked off or maybe months or days depending on how much you paid but you'd have time knocked off your child or loved one's sentence within purgatory because you were almost performing a holy act by giving money to the church or serving the church in some sort of way um and then there were there were women who if, if their children hadn't been baptized when they died and if you think about the death rate for, for, for women it was like you know two-fifths or something of children died within you know the first five days or whatever like if these children weren't baptized instantly that child was in purgatory but it was for a very long time and you had these mothers who were agonizing over the fact they'd lost children not only had they lost children they were now panicking about their immortal state and all they would know is eventually these children would be able to make it to heaven because they were pure enough to have not done too much shit to go to hell um and it, it, you know, it was only in like the early 2000s that the pope said oh, actually that was all wrong we're really sorry but you can't you can't apologize for like you know hundreds and hundreds of years of women who have lost children countless children probably each of these women lost so many kids like if you read any sort of um um sort of um history of kings of england right you're going to see like child died this age died this age died this age died this age heir lived to eight died this age died this age died like you have like you know a, a single woman could give birth to like 20 kids it's insane like Kirsty's done it too she wants no more um but like women were, were supposed to have lots and lots of children so the amount of children that died essentially and we then go oh, that's really sad that the children died but not only that these mothers had to try and baptize them before they died so they would they would make it and it had to be done by a priest and it had to be done usually by spending money if you wanted it to be done in a timely fashion so if you were poor you, you're fucked essentially um you've you've not got a chance unless the kid survives long enough to get to a to get to a church at the right time for it to happen so it's just interesting how it flips around. This whole Jamie Bolger story is really obviously sad, but then we have the other side where we've been doing these things for so long anyway. Does it really make a difference? I'm not sure it does. Um, and then, you, yeah, as I mentioned before, you look back to ancient history and the sheer amount of atrocity and loss and pain and suffering, if humans didn't have the drive to 
push forwards to find hope to make it through to tomorrow to actually without being rude just continue to propagate our genes to create societies where there was thriving and flourishing for us to be able to do that humanity would never have got to the place that we're in today we'd never have pushed ourselves forwards we'd have always just sat on our haunches and never done anything so the fact that we have the desire for justice and recompense and and hoping that there's going to be a better tomorrow like we still live like that today right we're, we're working hard to get our pensions to be able to retire to be able to have a hope that our kids might have to work a little bit less or there's a better world for them to live in like we're, we're still doing it in, in all our areas of life um and i think that very much fits into the sort of ancient humanity and even proto-humans like this drive to create a state that is better and if it isn't better to mourn and move forwards and have things that reconcile those things together like it doesn't matter that with the spirits now or we're going to sacrifice you look at kind of ancient aztec culture we're going to sacrifice these individuals to the gods because they're going to then bless the harvest which keeps the rest of us alive you begin to weave stories of horror into stories of hope to give your hope enough to keep you going it's fascinating the human mind and how we warp and twist things is fascinating but then you understand why when you hear a story like jamie bolger if i'm getting his name wrong i'm really sorry but i think people should know who i mean but when you when you then see stories of that you understand why within you you have this desire for that to be reconciled and justified and I, i'm not saying it's not horrific it's absolutely horrific i just don't think there's going to be a state where this person stands before god and god then finishes it and fixes it and sorts it out i think the, the sad reality seems to be that it, it comes to an end and things are left undone like we, we we don't get to write the last chapter we we get to put the pen down at some point in the story and we don't usually get to decide when we do that sure there are ways to decide when you do that but more often than not we don't get to say I'm going to finish this chapter. We usually think we're coming to a good bit and then we have to stop. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that is a hard reality to swallow. <laughs> I think it, it's worth really emphasizing that, especially in times of hardship and grief that, and I guess, I guess that's the main thing, like this idea of the afterlife and even like, in a weird way, this idea of hell and eternal conscious torment, it's, it's an understandable human construct to make that, to, to create some of these narratives, to, to provide hope. As you say, in, if, if you intermingle horror with hope, then your horror can have hope. Um, there's, there's a weird uh, psychology to that. And I guess, on one hand, it does make me more cautious in terms of just dismissing these ideas out of hand without appreciating oh, actually where these come from, you know, especially for those, those of us who are atheists of one extent or another, you know, if, if these beliefs are not divine, they're still human. There's still something underlying that. And I think that's that's often missed in a lot of the conversations that are had around this topic. Equally, it is such a powerful, like powerful psychological tool that can just hijack people's brains. And this is why I really, not that everyone who uses Pascal's wager are talking about eternal conscious torment, but this idea of, well, if you believe in God, and you're right, you get uh, like infinite good. And if you're wrong, infinite bad. And if God doesn't rot, exist, well, you rot in the ground either way. And so therefore, pragmatically, you should choose God. It, it's hacking the game. It's hacking the conversation. It's introducing infinite uh, 
benefits or risks um, in order to make this distinction rather than the far more sober-minded assessment of actually we, we do need to be really careful about our beliefs especially when it comes into the topic of ethics especially when it comes into um there's this counter argument to pascal's wager called pascal's mugging um which is uh effectively if a guy um a homeless guy stops you in the street uh with a knife and says give me your wallet or i will take this knife i will go home and in my basement are a million children and I will torture and kill them all. I mean, do you give him your wallet? What are the chances that he has a million children in his basement? Surely it's incredibly, incredibly small. But at the same time, well, how much money would you give to stop one child being killed or tortured? And therefore, surely you should multiply that by a million and it's probably going to be larger than the contents of your wallet. You're, but then if you give in, then every single mugger is now now has this perfect tactic and and we end up in a situation where that risk benefit analysis just completely breaks down and it becomes utterly utterly meaningless and and that's the problem i have with this argument around oh utilizing hell is such a powerful tool and it subjects so many people to these pascal's mugging because you know I'm certain we would be able to, within a short Google searching, find one Christian preacher that says you must do X in order to go to heaven and make sure you don't go to hell. And I'm pretty certain we'll find another pastor who will say you must not do X, otherwise uh, you will go to heaven. But if you do it, you will go to hell. And, and it becomes utterly meaningless. And that's, I think, the biggest problem with this. It's, it's such a powerful construct. And I think we need to appreciate this is such a strong psychological tool that we need to be very, very careful of and not just flippantly dismiss it or flippantly use it in any sort of conversation. Yeah. And then you kind of add in the idea that we've had um, our entire lives these days to be fed this truth like it's a basic doctrine that heaven and hell are a thing um there are countless albums and artwork and it's in you know it's general general sort of like um live conversation isn't it like oh you know this this food tastes like heaven or um you know you, you want to experience uh, this this today is so hot i feel like i'm in hell or or you say like go to hell or whatever it's like it's just in it's just in our, our daily sort of like lives that um actually you know I, I i know for a fact that my family very much do believe in hell and they will think that i'm going there and that's a that's a real kind of worry for them and it was and kind of is at times for me as well and it's this kind of reality that actually your your brain is a very moldable thing so it has it has a high plasticity which means it's you're, you're able to rewire it pretty easily and it kind of they talk about plasticity and things like um sort of drug and drugs and addictions and and those sorts of things and how you can quite quickly through the right ways rewire things but if something's been happening since day zero and you've been taught and told and held and you know taken to school and and also been taught doctrines of heaven and hell it's it's just like the air you breathe is you're sort of like a fish unaware of the water you're in um and because of that it can really cause issues coming outside of a faith 
And I think just kind of touching on things that I have found helpful to kind of work this through is the realization, for instance, that and I know you mentioned this, Daniel, recently um, on on the Graceful Atheist podcast, but um, that there, there there isn't there isn't a fear of the Islamic hell within me at all. If someone said to me that Allah's real and you need to fear the Islamic hell, I'd be like, Are you fucking high. Like I've never thought of that. There's not been a thing for me at all. I've never had that issue. And essentially, you can turn around and go. That is what anybody that has not been raised to be told that hell is literally like is going to think if you say to them, Yahweh or God is real and the Christian hell is true. They're going to be like, what are you, what are you on about? Of course it's not. I've never had any any reason to believe that's true other than indoctrinated facts that have been given to people. I say indoctrinated facts, and they're not facts, but they're presented as, as if they are facts. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a very, it's been a very, very helpful tool for me to go actually, what is it that I'm scared of? I'm scared of a very specific hell presented in a very specific way for a very specific purpose. And um, the biggest issue within the sort of Christian framework that I, I, that I grew up in and, and have come out of is, is, is almost like the, the one that knew it to be true and then deliberately rejected it to be true that is where the deepest pit of hell is to be held for. And that's the thing that's got me is the case of, um, it's almost like a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Like, have I, I'm almost like racking my brains. Like, did I ever actually know that God was real and I just forgotten? And I can't, I don't think I have ever known he's real now, but has there been something that's proven that he's real to me? And I'm just ignoring that now. And, and that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we don't actually know what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, but there are again, hundreds of years of theology of people racking their brains or, or panicking that they have committed this unforgivable sin essentially um what, what does it mean to have blasphemy of the holy spirit but we're not really sure um the closer we get to is the idea that somebody knows that god is like literally knows god is real and says i know i don't want anything to do with you um and i don't think that's either of us daniel like i don't think we've had that sort of experience of going i literally know this to be true but i don't want anything to do with it otherwise we'd say yeah god's real but i don't want anything to do with it like that's that's how i'd be talking if that's true um so yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm going off on a few tangents there, but I think the sort of indoctrination from a young age and the very specific sorts of hells that people are told. Like I know loads and loads of people that come out of Islam who have a massive fear of the Islamic hell, but the Christian hell means nothing to them. They're like, "Are you kidding me? That's pathetic." We've heard about the Islamic hell, and we're like, "Have you heard about the Have you heard about the Christian hell? Like Dante's Inferno sort of stuff? It's pretty hardcore." Um, and then you know, especially in the West, what's interesting is we're diluting that now with stuff like universalism or annihilationism or, or whatever else it is. We're adding things onto the onto the plate to kind of help us to be okay with this idea of judgment and and a, and, a, and an eternity in some sort of state without God, uh, we try and fix it, solve it, put things on it. But then you, yeah, it, it then asks and brings up a, a whole host of other questions. Um, Daniel, I mean, I'd be really interested to sort of hear about the sort of things you were um, or believed in before you left Christianity and the sort of, um, I know you mentioned this again briefly on the Graceful Atheist podcast, but it'd be really interesting to kind of get your take on how you have begun to work this through, where you are with it today. Is, is it completely settled? Will it ever be settled? Like those sorts of questions I think would be really helpful for many listeners, both in and outside of faith. So yeah, go, go on, mate. Tell us about your story. Yeah, I guess I just before I do that, though, you picked up on something which just set off a really interesting thought, just that idea that heaven and hell are, are really strongly in our culture still. And I think especially, you know, it's kind of funny to appreciate that as a young child, you are so impressionable. And I guess if you are taught that heaven and hell are not real, 
in any sense of the word. Like you see that on TV and you think it's a fictional world. If you are taught that it's real in any way, but you're not really like no one's ever sitting you down and giving you this really detailed theological breakdown as to what people mean by that, then all those cultural references become part of your understanding of it. And I'd never fully appreciated that because, you know, and I guess sort of leading into, you know, my my thoughts as a Christian, you know, the the adult me would very clearly have given you this very long talk about Dante's Inferno is not canon. How much does the Bible say about it? Very little. What can we be certain of? And I would probably have taken you away from the subject entirely and just gone, we don't know that much. And how are we going to check what, what we can be certain of? There, I mean, there's one way to find out, but let's not go down that route. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it, it's not something that we can talk about to the same level of meaning and depth. And the Bible only gives us a couple of indications. So I, I would have gone, I would have said, the, the most important thing to understand is that a life with God is infinitely better than a life without God because that is what you were designed for. Uh, and even within this life, we should know and appreciate God for who he is. And we can have confidence that in the afterlife, you know, we would, we will be saved. Um, and Christ's resurrection is our assurance of that. And the Holy Spirit is our deposit in, in, of that promise. Uh, and all these other theological points, because it, it is just quite a, difficult and complex topic at the same time I did sort of hold to this idea that there is judgment and while I wouldn't have taught so much about hell um I would have said there is it's not even just in like oh here's a bible verse that sort of backs up a particular theology but rather this this ongoing motif through scripture of who is God how does he look at the world? How does he interact with it? And one thing which I would say was clearly in my understanding of who God is and how I understood the Bible is that God is a God of judgment. And he does separate the sheep from the goats. He does, you know, choose the Israelite people, but at times punishes them and curses them for the rebellion against him. The other factor is, of course, I, um, I, I mean, I say I'm a Cal. I was a Calvinist. Um, in in some ways, I was never quite as happy with some of the very detailed prescriptive nature of Calvinism, um, and but was far more around. Well, actually, God is sovereign. God is in control, and we will always have the tendency to say, no, man is in control more, um, and take some of the power away from God. But ultimately, God is the one who chooses who, who, who is saved and who is not. Um, and in particular, uh, you know, verses like Romans 9, where... Uh, Paul talks about these vessels of mercy being saved up for him and vessels of wrath that God has created um, in order to be destroyed. And, you know, it says, oh, um, the vessels will talk back and say, well, why have you made me like this? But, you know, who are they to talk back to God? God is, 
it's the pot maker. He's got the right to make you whatever he chooses for his purposes. Um, and while, of course, you know, from that single passage, you can say, well, Paul is talking about the, the Gentiles and the, the relationship with the Jews and how the Jews are uh, relate to the law and to God and to judgment and all the rest of it. It is still building on that motif um, of judgment that you see right throughout scripture and right throughout this character of God um, and indeed even in the character of Christ, like Matthew 25. Um, and so, yeah, so when I left faith, it, very similar to, to what you said earlier, it was the moments where I felt like, what if I've got this wrong? Um, have I have I just bottled it because my faith asks too much of me, um, and I'm just not bold enough to disappoint people, and I'm being too people pleasing in accepting these moral intuitions of my surrounding society and not holding firm to the truth that the Bible gave me. Am I am I rejecting? God for a more selfish lifestyle, even though that was never part of the thought process at all. It, it, but it, it, so many, so much Christian teaching, and especially the work of certain apologists who shall not be named, um, is focused on that message of, oh, you, you're doing this in order to sin, or your reasons are illegitimate. And, and ultimately, you know, I wasn't a Christian, but I was still a Calvinist. And that's a really messed up place to be, um, <laughs> to sort of believe that, okay, so if I'm, if I'm no longer a Christian, if I no longer have access to God, then if I'm right, you know, I've just spent the last 28 years of my life being completely mistaken around this major thing and it's completely worthless. And if I'm wrong, that's even worse. That means that actually I am that vessel of wrath. I have been created by God to curse him and to die. And especially, you know, the idea that's set, set out in Romans 9, and I guess, sort of where I started to unpack some of this stuff was just this, this single moment where it just talks about the reason that the vassals of wrath are built up is so that God's glory might be known to his vessels of mercy. Like this idea of people who go through judgment are created in order for that those who are saved have a comparison <laughs> against and the, you know, during the darkest, darkest days. And, you know, when I left faith, uh, I'd have my moments of thinking these things, but it wasn't particularly strong. Um, it, was, it was only really a year later where one, I started to tell people and I wasn't going to church and I lost a lot of the community that I had around me. And two, COVID happened. And so all of a sudden I was completely isolated and I, I wasn't able 
as as able to create new friendships that actually that isolation and that feeling of worthlessness not even worthlessness like less than worthlessness like my worth was the bad thing um was what really played on my mind as i i left faith what did you think that jesus taught interesting to hear that what, what did you think jesus message was was it a message of heaven and hell or was it annihilation like how did you view the gospels and, and his kind of key message then yeah it's it's really interesting because i feel like you know matthew 25 in the separation of the sheep and the goats um kind of continues on that that message um i'm really struggling with references now because it's been a while but um you know he still talks about the the destruction of the the temple and he's still you know got these apocalyptic you know threads uh to his teaching he still draws on the old testament which contains passages of 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 god cursing his people and you know, I didn't buy into this idea of Jesus being a um, entirely soft and calm and compassionate. Like even the the my view of Jesus was still embedded within this overall view of God, which was first of all, he's God. He's like this idea that he was your best friend first kind of didn't feel comfortable to me at all like no he's god he's the all-powerful creator that is and not that's why you worship him like that's that's first and foremost his act of salvation and his love for us is great and it comes out of that and it's it's incredibly positive and it allows us to have a relationship with him but it's never without that understanding of of just who he is as a great and powerful being. And so I, I had that same understanding of, of Jesus as well. And I think, you know, obviously now when I look at the Bible and I look at um, some of those parables and the different teachings, and obviously the far more awareness I have now of, you know, how much do we have the teachings of Jesus? I would, I would, be skeptical of not to say that we have none uh, at all um but probably we've got teachings that have then been interpreted translated like uh told on interpreted again told on interpreted again told on before recorded even then in some of the earliest gospels um even you know if it was one person heard it first and then reported recorded it in mark we've still got a massive gap of time where they might misremember because they probably told the same story so many times over and over again so in terms of a historical jesus i have no idea what that was but and therefore i kind of who jesus is i guess as an atheist it's, it's no longer so important a question but certainly as a christian you know a kind and loving savior was true but i didn't i didn't see a lack of judgment or retribution in it. Yeah, it's interesting. I think my interpretation of Jesus was a um like a brother or a a 
almost like a lover, but in a non-sexual way, like somebody who you would want to spend all your time with and would look after you and comfort you and, and be with you and almost like a sort of like um sort of pretty end of a rom-com, like that sort of like figure that you'd find your completion in. Um, I've, and I think as time went by, I began to look at the sort of different theological outworkings of that and how you actually related to God and how God can't necessarily be those things. It doesn't quite, it doesn't quite make sense. And then the more that I've addressed the question of who was Jesus, um, I keep coming back to this idea of we don't know. We, we, we only have John, which sounds weird. Let me kind of explain it. Um, like we don't know what Jesus said. What we have, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is probably some sayings of Jesus that have been scattered around with a theological web that has been put over them, like this film of theology that is kind of being played to you as you read a gospel message. It's like a, it's like an, an, an olden day pro- propaganda message that's trying to relay a specific viewpoint in a specific way to kind of, um, impact people to believe specific things and it's it's not trying to just let you know this person said the stuff and we think this might be true it's trying to go this is the truth this is what happened and then you have four gospel messages saying different things the earliest gospels jesus seems to be far more apocalyptic than he does in the later gospel messages so the, the most likely thing we can get to is this apocalyptic preacher kind of like john who's coming along to try and tell people to fix themselves to stop doing weird stuff and to begin to once again turn to Yahweh like viewing himself as almost like a Jonah or a um, Ezekiel and his sort of like um, ability to prophesy ability to condemn and rebuke and draw out of people their their heart's desire to follow Yahweh as the Jewish people would have very much felt and you kind of see that and then you begin to kind of see how Jesus if he was doing that wasn't teaching hell with wrath he was teaching annihilation with wrath God's wrath was going to come and then people were going to be placed into the fire where the, you know, there's gnashing, weeping of teeth. That's not a permanent state. That's a temporary, oh, am I going to do? And then there's death because fire destroys, right? You don't come out of fire alive. Fire is what you would use to end things. And the sort of place he talks about Gehenna is the, 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 the burning valley, essentially. It's where people put their literal shit and filth and rubbish and burnt it. And back in the day, that's where child sacrifice was prevalent, which is why it's a, a, a state of um, horror and uh, everything that's ungodly becomes Gehenna because it is this place where the ungodly was done. Um, so it's really interesting. We can begin to see the sorts of very, very beginning first shoots of, of heaven and hell, like following Yahweh and being with Yahweh and being destroyed in Gehenna. And then those things becoming the sort of 21st century Western concepts of, of heaven and hell, which, which is different to the 20th century and different to the 19th century. And, and these things have, have massively progressed. Um, it is fascinating. So, I mean, that's, that's what I think that's, that's the earliest we can get to. That's what it seems to be most honest Christian theologians and most non-Christian theologians come to this conclusion that, that the closest to Jesus, like who was Jesus, uh, seems to be a apocalyptic preacher who believed that they had been endowed with Yahweh's blessing and wanted to prophesy and proclaim almost the sort of coming of God. And then this sort of like incredible moment where the disciples were like, oh my goodness, there's this person who's we think has come back from the dead. What does that mean? And then they began to outwork it. And we can talk about that at another point. But um, if that is true, then that means that Jesus' message wasn't a message of heaven and hell. It was a message of separation and destruction. And 
if that's true, it means that our concept of heaven and hell isn't what Jesus believed. If that's the earliest Jesus we can get to, you know, when you get to John, it's very different. It's been theologized to the extreme. It's got such an agenda, such a community it's been written to. It's completely different. And, um, you know, there's loads we can go into there as well, but it's interesting how heaven and hell become more prevalent as time goes by. And then we begin to see it becoming even more prevalent when it gets to the sort of post New Testament era gospel messages that would have been kind of, you know, the gospel of, you know, the cross or whatever it is where it's much more sort of a gnostic in its elements and sort of like the in and the out are very much known. But I think what you mentioned before, just to kind of hark back to it as well, Daniel, was this idea of judgment. And it's something that um my family talk about a lot, this sort of like righteous judgment where in the fullness of time God will essentially hand out his wrath on those that have not followed him and he will destroy and and completely annihilate them and it just seems so alien to us today this idea that someone who is god the one that decided to reconcile us to himself even after we messed it up if it's true would then want to also create humans and individuals to be vessels of wrath and would allow various empires to flourish and then be destroyed because he was trying to prove a point but still he'll still use like the Babylonian empire or the Persian empire to to, to get to his end as well which is a really interesting one so I don't know I find it if, if this is true it's almost almost like God has um some sort of like um I don't know what's the right phrase but someone has like multiple personalities he's um maybe schizophrenic like he's got this like um this this inability to give a coherent message which people can get behind and follow and understand there seems to be a real confusion where it, it, if you are a vessel of wrath you could still know that god is god and you could still believe in him because his vessels of wrath are talking to god right but there is nothing there is nothing you can do about it so it's almost like what's the point in even trying like if, if there is no way you're either going to be in or out right there's, there's there's nothing you can do about that so what's the point in trying to get behind something that you cannot actually interfere with or interact with or shift the possibilities of it's either going to happen or it's not going to happen and you could still like like the devil knows jesus i hope this all the time like the devil knows the bible the devil knows jesus but he's not saved you can be saved by having a relationship it's about the relationship with jesus that gets you saved but my issue is like the devil the devil knows more than me like i don't know jesus like i would i would like to believe there's this person called jesus that's real and actually having inter- like an interaction with him and a, a relationship but um i can't begin to do that if you do not know what you're putting your relationship into and if that then means that you're a vessel of wrath and you never had any control of that anyway so it's almost like your destiny was preset and you're just living out this sort of um weird yeah almost like um kind of binary framework where you're just a computer program being you've been hit play the moment you're born and you're going to the commands been executed and you'll just follow it through to completion whatever that is so yeah. yeah, Calvinism without Christianity sucks. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty awful like uh, conclusion to come to. And yeah, it, it, it haunted me for some time. Um, I think, you know, when what I talked about earlier, just around this is such a, a, a cognitive, psychological, like deep thing, especially, you know, for those of us that have grown up in, in that understanding of heaven and hell. And I think a, a couple of things you mentioned there, and you've already mentioned a couple that one sort of appreciating, okay, you're afraid of some hell now that either you've left religion or you've deconstructed it in some way and have sort of changed what it looks like. Um, but you're not afraid of all these other forms. You know, that's that's one way to sort of work past this. Another one is 
as you mentioned, it's already changed. It's constantly changing. It's not something that's just been static that has been held onto as much as so many Bible teachers would like to think it is. That that's just not we what we see in historical do- documents and the development of this this theology. And you know, if it was so clear cut, surely the Bible would have been a little bit more articulate about such an important matter. Um, you would think. Um, and obviously, yeah, it, I think the other thing is, is that obviously, especially, I think there's a, a, people grieve for all sorts of things as they go through life. And even like leaving a, a faith for so many of us, it's sort of, it's, it's a journey of grief um, of one form or another that you have to go through as you you lose parts of your identity, your community, but also so many things that might have been your coping mechanism for helping you through times of hardship. You know, even as COVID-19 hits, the the search term for prayer on Google just shot up. And so many sort of religious studies scholars, you know, talk about religious belief and faith being so um, prevalent, especially in times of sort of collective trauma and, and problems. And we see that. I, I would argue even like huge tunk, chunks of the Old Testament, when you understand, oh, this is written by a group of people who have just gone into exile and are really struggling and are trying to hold on to some sense of identity through this awful circumstance. You can really uh, see a lot more of, of the humanity in these stories and what they're trying to do and hold on to. But of course, when you, when you're grieving the loss of the very thing that would usually give you comfort. It, it puts you in a very difficult situation. And especially with this hell anxiety, I know for me, like the thing that triggered it off a lot was the isolation and the idea that I was, you know, as I mentioned, the vessel of wrath whose purpose was for the, the vessel of mercies to to celebrate when I get destroyed. And those people being my friends and family, my Christian parents, my Christian friends, my Christian wife, my, you know, they, the personal insecurities that I had, that I had lost my coping mechanism for, the assurance that I had that I still had value because I had value in God, no matter what I did, I had that assurance that was gone the value that i had to the church as you know a community that would love me regardless was gone i was i was their worst nightmare now um and so so much of this fear was that masquerading behind this sort of you're afraid of the judgment and you know i think for anyone going through it well there are these things that might help you think through this a little bit more. I would also say, especially if this is something that you've been in since you're a child, is if you can afford it, get therapy. Um, I think that's such a crucial step. And, you know, there's people like Recovering from Religion, the Secular Therapy Project, the Clergy Project, and other organizations that are sort of set up to deal with some of these um, symptoms of leaving faith. And I think that's important because while, you know, it's quite a common occurrence and that's surprising and it's weird because, 
you know, it's, it, and I was aware of this even during those darkest of days going through it, like, this isn't a rational belief. Like, I don't believe hell exists. And I've already settled that in my mind. It's just these moments of doubt, which cripple that. And it's such a strong psychological lever that just pulls on me. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's deep inside and that will take some time and effort and talking about to actually get it out and to recognize what that is and what's going on. And that could be different for different people. For some, it might just be that pure image of fire and brimstone because they have been surrounded by that Dante's Inferno narrative around that. You know, it could be something like I went through in terms of actually there was sort of this underlying wound of, you know, personal security that these, this theology had sort of crept into that gap and just made it wider. And I think it's it's important for people to take the time to work through. But I know that certainly in, in my case, as soon as I understood that wider context and I could sort of see a little bit more of those underlying thought processes that I had, when I could appreciate sort of what this hell narrative was and how it's been used and how it developed and changed over time as well and it's it's not something that's so concrete even within christianity never mind um outside of it and across all faiths um i was able to to work past that and you know nowadays even when i have those moments of oh I'm doubting myself. I'm doubting the conclusions that I've come to. It, it's no longer that crippling fear, that that paralysis that I would I would get stuck into. What about yourself, Sam? How how has it changed now? Because obviously, as you said earlier, right in the beginning, you've changed a lot uh, over the course of you know uh, the podcasts and you know even the blogs that go on from way before that. How how has that sort of changed for you now? Yeah, it's interesting. At some point, I've got a tattoo on my arm, which um, I won't show now because I'm wearing a long sleeve t-shirt, so it's not very helpful. Um, but basically, um, it's got um, some Mandarin, which basically the first word is God, and then the second word is Jesus, um, written phonetically. And then I've got sort of like butterflies and and uh, petals and basically wind and movement. And that I had that done when I was a Christian, and it's to represent the Holy Spirit um, and God and Jesus. So it's, it's the Trinity essentially. And um, I think now I'd really like to get a sort of like Dante inferno hell further down on my arm because it, honestly i just think it would encapsulate my journey so much people wish you to check like why don't you got heaven but why don't you get hell done i was like okay fuck it i will um so i think at some point i'll do that as sort of like a healing thing but um i think a big thing for me is uh, first of all trying to understand who jesus actually was and what he preached and what he based his preaching upon and the Old Testament, and then begin to look in the Old Testament and know what can we actually understand and know about this. I mean, you talked about this, these Israelites coming out of um, exile, and yes, we believe they came out of exile from uh, Babylon and Persia, and even they're under, they're almost under like a home exile with the Roman Empire, but like, you know, the Egyptian sort of actual exodus when they're in exile, we just, we don't think that's true anymore. We don't, there's no real, like, any historical evidence to prove that. And there's, that you just begin to unpack 
what it is grounded in. And you begin to realize that there is this desire to kind of cultivate a narrative which gives purpose and meaning to a group of people to kind of see them through. And then the sort of final thing for me that I've come to realize, and it's kind of a weird one, is um, I'm very big, obviously very, in, very big into into evolution. Uh, it's one of the sort of things that began to kind of make me question the goodness of God. And then that all fell apart, obviously. But your brain is working behind the scenes more than you think. Like we think we are individuals that have the rational capacity to function fully here right now. Like we think this is tangible and this is real. And it is to a certain point, but you know, 80% of what actually goes on is, is behind the curtain, like, like the wizard of Oz. Um, there's actually a magician behind that curtain and multiple magicians, what we can tell is different sorts of consciousness going on within your brain, different sorts of people really who, who are in there doing stuff. And, um, you have things pushed out into your consciousness all the time. And if you have been brought up or, or at least fully believed in this heaven and hell reality, if you can convince yourself that hell is real and you should fear it, that is going to drive you back into a, an evolutionary good place which is to go to a group of people that you know will love you that will look after you that will welcome you back that will provide for you because in that environment you're going to be able to reproduce and live and have the things that you think you need so actually from a sort of um, a, a purely survivalistic mindset kind of put into us hundreds of thousands of years ago it, it, it's going to have these sorts of weird knee-jerk reactions it comes out of the dark we don't really know where it comes from because our brains still think we're there our brains don't understand from the 21st century with mobile phones and stuff like we haven't evolved for these things these things are falling into our laps and and it's it's it's, it's interesting because our brains are still trying to mechanistically program us into a state of unity with groups of people and if you can get around a central message you have an amazing group of people so if your brain can push these things into your consciousness often enough you might be able to go back into this group which means you'll have those securities that evolutionary have been very beneficial to us in the past and understanding that from some sort of i mean that's a very basic level i'm really shit with like evolutionary psychology but if you begin to look at stuff like um jonathan um had it wrote or hide it or whatever his name is um wrote a really interesting book called the righteous mind and that looks at the sort of um the sort of person riding the elephant and how the elephant just goes wherever it wants some of the times this person on top sometimes gets to steer it but not very often and and, you know, even Jordan B. Peterson, I don't necessarily agree with what he says about Christianity very often, but he's got a very interesting take on the evolutionary purpose of stories and how they're helpful. Um, there's so much going on within the sort of evolutionary psychology that I think is, is helpful to be able to begin to unpack why you are putting yourself through the ring with fearing hell and fearing judgment because actually there are reasons behind it which are deeper than just the 2,000-year-old stories we've been telling ourselves. These sorts of stories have been going on for as long as humans are being able to communicate, essentially, we've 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 come around stories and motifs. So, um, yeah, I think that's that, that's really important, and it, it it goes back as well to even further than communication because we were trying to get around alpha males or leaders of some some sorts because we believe that they would lead us into a better state of existence. So if you look at certain sorts of octopus, for instance, uh, they tend to kind of get around a certain ringleader, usually a male model, that they will then see dominates the other ones and kind of like almost playfully dominates them. And that weirdly, the, the other males and other females don't leave. They seem to come around and kind of have this collection with them. And we see that in, in other scatterings of different sorts of groups, which consciousness has arisen in, in different ways. There seems to be a desire to formulate some sort of construct which, which creates a community and helps us to be able to create narrative, um, even in that basic state. Like, that's not saying that Jesus is real or there's some sort of like, we're going to create money and we're going to be able to transact. It's much more of a, a sort of evolutionary mechanism to help us kind of have these societies as, to some structure. So just, just 
recognize that you are far more complex than you can give yourself credit for. And there is so much more going on in your brain and your mind and even in your hormones and in the sorts of glands that are letting things off. Like you just don't understand what's happening in your brain most of the time. So just recognize that when it's two in the morning and you wake up and you're panicking about going to hell, that you got it all wrong and you struggle to get back to sleep. Just put it down and go, I am far more complicated than I can possibly understand. And I have as long as my life leads me in to explore this space and to really work out what I do and don't believe. And if you find that you believe in Christianity again and you want to believe in this stuff again, that's your journey. But for others who aren't in those journeys, recognize that you have the ability to understand why you don't believe it and you can begin to help other people to unpack that themselves as well. Um, so I've said a lot there, so I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet for a little bit. But yeah, that, that's my sort of knee-jerk reaction to what you said. Fair enough. Good stuff. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk about Alpha uh, Males and uh, Jordan B. Peterson another time because I, I think we could have an interesting discussion there because I completely disagree. But we'll get, we could have another discussion another time. But I do think you're you're spot on with the like your overarching point in terms of like that we are complex creatures and there is so much going on underneath the surface. And I, I think that's so important. And, and I think also, you know, as I was touching on earlier, just appreciating like this concept taps into some of these, yeah, these primordial like desires for vengeance and justice that are helpful and important and need to be understood, but carefully handled because yeah, they are the raw. Like if you have gone through some injustice that has hit you right to your core in some way, it is a feeling like nothing else. And thoughts that you would you would never in your sane moments thought possible can run through your head. And that is entirely natural. And so these ideas shouldn't feel alien. And I think the more that we understand them, the better. Um, but at the same time, at the end of the day, hell is not real. It's as simple as that. <laughs> yeah, I think hell would have been the gulags or the trenches in World War One, or the front lines in World War Two, or things like that. That is that is hell. Hell is human made and it is horrific, far more horrific than we even agree with C.S. Lewis in his books. It's interesting, like he, humans have the ability to craft their own hell very easily and we can then play on those motifs within the spiritual realm as well. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To leave any comments or thoughts, you can head over to YouTube and to follow us on social media or to see where else we are online, hit the link in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality. I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey.